0: let me add my welcome i'm mike and one of the ministers here and I'll be speaking for the next while well come with me on a journey through a great city it's called manchester we're going to go up to the city centre we're going to go to this building which has been described as a playstation 2 Its real name is the Beetham Tower, sometimes called the Hilton Tower. The bottom part is the Hilton Hotel. Above that is apartments. We're gonna go right up to the top, far above Cloud 23. You know, we're gonna go even right to the very top, to the, the top penthouse suite, which is the highest home in Britain. And we're gonna go, and here's the owner. He's actually the architect who designed the tower. And here he is in his living room, looking up at the ceiling and pondering. And we're going to go with him, and we'll knock on the door, and he kindly lets us in and goes off to make us a coffee. And while we're there, we're looking out of these incredible windows. What a view he has. You know, he also has the only olive grove in Manchester in his flat. He had the, the olive trees shipped over from Italy and put in before they put the roof on an indoor olive grove and as we're looking out what do we see out of these incredible windows there's a view from there by the way I haven't been there I got these pictures off the Guardian website (laughs) but I would love to go (laughs) what do you see as you as you scan this tower is visible from 10 counties I think you would see cranes dozens of them flinging up new buildings but they can't keep up with the demand for housing This city is growing much faster than its ability to accommodate people. You would also see old mills. You'd probably see some old mill chimneys. Many of them are now converted into modern flats. That's a testament to the city's industrial past and its vibrant present. You'd see row upon row of red brick terraced houses. You'd hear the strains of Coronation Street. Thousands upon thousands of these red brick terraced houses built to withstand the rain. There are no grand Georgian townhouses here. This was a working city, not built on old money and inherited wealth, and it still is. You'd see great libraries, the Central Library. You'd see the John Rylands, one of the finest libraries in the world, You'd see an extensive university presence, two of the biggest universities in this country. You'd see a very leading music conservatory. This city's home to more than 80,000 students, thousands of future leaders from Asia, Africa, Europe, America, all over the world, come here to study. The city is an educational hub for the whole world. And then further away, you'd see two big football stadia, With two major Premier League football clubs, with Pep and Jose duking it out. We're not going to reflect any bias in this sermon today. The title of the sermon is City. (laughs) But we're all going to be united. You'd see the National Football Museum, the National Cycling Centre. You'd see Old Trafford Cricket Ground. Shout out for the cricket fans over there. This place is a hub for sports and athletics and leisure. We look to the north, south, east, west. We see the ten boroughs of the Greater Manchester metropolis. It's home to more than two and a half million people. It's the fastest growing place outside London. It has a fast growing economy. It's been called the Northern Powerhouse, creating jobs and opportunities for many people. We'd swoop down like a drone to the ground level. We'd go past the Bridgewater Hall and we'd hear the Halle Orchestra rehearsing something beautiful. And then we'd hear the strains of rock bands in garages and pubs and bedrooms. Perhaps we could hear the next Smiths, New Order, Stone Roses, or Oasis. This is a city with music in its bones, creative place. We'd smell the spices of Middle Eastern, African and Asian Food on the curry mile mixed in with the sweet aroma of shisha pipes. We'd see the crescent moon on the spires of mosques. We'd see women wearing burqas. We'd hear people greet one another in Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, Hindi, Kurdish, Amharic, and a host of other languages. We'd see people learning English and talking about Jesus in the Alexandria Library. This is an international city. We'd see rough sleepers hugging themselves in wet tents in the rain, begging outside shops, stirring sugar into disposable coffee cups. We'd see young people high on drugs or drinking themselves numb. There are asylum seekers we would see in houses with hardly a stick of furniture, their family far away. We'd see the lean faces drawn and hollow of people with no prospects and no hope for the future. There's real poverty here. We would see the glitter and the glamour of the city centre, maybe at night, the bustling shops, the restaurants and clubs, the strength of the financial district. We'd see the £1 million-plus Victorian houses in the wealthy, leafy suburbs of the urban south. There's money here too. We'd see Media City, new technology start-ups. We'd see the BBC reporting news, creating world-class entertainment. This is an influential place. Culture is shaped here. And what about followers of Jesus, those called Christians? Do we see them? How many? What about churches? How do they relate to this great city? Now, I try to paint a very broad canvas today to capture your imagination and your mind's eye about the scale and the scope of Manchester. And the key question I want to ask today, I want us to think through together, is how do we relate to the city as Christian believers? How do we relate to the city as a church? It's a key question as we conclude our series, Grace in the City, and it's been a series about our vision and values. And this beautiful slide captures it all. There's the city. It's the context in which our church is operating. There's the PlayStation 2. And here's the gospel which leads to these things and to worship. Now, how does it all tie together? The purpose of our church is worship. And that means a lot more than just singing Christian songs with your eyes closed. Worship is about what you love. It's about the person or the thing that commands your ultimate love. The love that shapes your life. The love that commands your heart adoration, your loyalty, your service, the thing you serve, that's what you worship. And if you worship Jesus Christ, he can give you meaning and purpose, identity, forgiveness, clean conscience, and a future. All the things your heart wants. But anything else will disappoint you. If you worship Jesus Christ, he can carry you in his great arms of love and bear the burden of your life. But anything else you will have to carry, and it will wear you down, and it becomes a heavy load. It's that important. So the reason why our church exists, the reason why our church must be all about worship is that this is what we were made for. We're all about worship, and that means we're all about helping each other to be lovers of God, true lovers who know God and follow him and obey him, and we want to help a steady stream of people find their way to being lovers of God. And the way we come... To know and love God is through a message. That's why this is in a speech bubble. It's called the gospel. It's a news report. This message, according to the Apostle Paul, is of first importance. It's a thing of first importance because it's through the gospel that we are saved. We're saved from the wrath of God and his just punishment. And through this gospel, we're also saved from the bitterness of an empty way of life that's been handed down to us by our culture. And we restored to the glorious life connected to God that we were made for. By the gospel, you become the person you were meant to be. This gospel is a message with definite content. It's about Christ. It's a title that means Messiah, King. Christ died and he was buried. Christ was raised from the dead and he appeared to many witnesses. And the consequence of Christ's work was Grace, we just sang about it. That means free, gracious, kind mercy to people who don't deserve it. The gospel can be summed up like this You are more wicked and sinful than you ever realized, and more loved and accepted than you ever dreamed would be possible. The greater the sense of the forgiveness we received, the greater the love and commitment we have towards the Lord who has forgiven us. In the case of the apostle Paul, he had a sense of infinite debt to the God who had shown such grace, and it fueled a profound passion to spread the fame and glory of that gracious, forgiving God. We have to keep this as our center as a church. We sometimes call ourselves a gospel-centered church, and that's what that means. Paul says this gospel is not merely a message, although it is that. It's also a power a power. It's the power of God for salvation. And when it's unleashed, it draws people into three things. It draws them into community, it propels them out on mission, and it melts their hearts to be people of justice. Community. We thought about the beauty of of community, a really accepting, inclusive, open place, not all based on people like me, but great diversity of people, people you'd never normally be friends with, are drawn into the Christian community. It's beautiful. We thought about the challenge of community, and we thought about the call to community. But we also thought about the fact that community, in the Bible, is not an end in itself. Community is all about building us up so that we can be people on mission. We are sent with a message to all kinds of people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week we thought about justice and thought that according to the Bible we should be passionate about justice, and by that I mean social action and social concern for the poor and needy. We should be passionate about it for three reasons, the character of God, the reign of God, and the grace of God. Now that, in five minutes, was a summary of five sermons averaging 40 minutes each. That's 200 minutes, which is still shorter than the extended DVD edition of Lord of the Rings film, by the way. But there's one more piece to consider in this diagram, and it's this. How do we relate to our city? How do we relate to our city? Is it just a place that we happen to live? And we could just as well live somewhere else. Or is there something significant about major urban centers in God's plan? Is there something significant about major urban centers in the historical moment that we find ourselves in? I want to answer yes to both of those questions. How do we relate to our city? In the remainder of our time, I want to try and excite you about the Bible's vision for cities and persuade you to stay and serve in Manchester for a long time. There's no hidden agenda here. That's the agenda. I, I want to try and excite you about the Bible's vision for cities and persuade you to stay... And serve in Manchester for a very long time. Two points today. See, you're getting off lightly. Two points God's view of the city and grace in the city. God's view of the city. How does the Bible view cities? This great book, we have this library of 66 books, is full of wisdom. John Calvin said, You open the Bible, it's like opening the lips of God. What does it say about cities? It turns out it has quite a lot to say, often very subtle. And not simplistic. It could be summarized, summarized with two words: tension and redemption. Tension and redemption. Now we're going to uh, go on a roller coaster ride through the major Bible texts about cities. Are you ready? Do you have your seat belts fastened? Some points on this ride, you will be turned upside down, lose some of your money, maybe be sick. Okay. We're starting where the Bible starts, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4. I'm gonna, I've not put all these on the uh, overhead in case some people experience vertigo. But uh, if you want to follow along and you can keep the pages flapping to keep yourself awake, we find in Genesis chapter 4 the story of Cain and Abel, the first murderer. Cain killed Abel and God judged Cain. And he said to him in verse 12, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain is to be restless and unsafe. Um, And so Cain goes out from God's presence. And then in verse 17, God even shows mercy to Cain. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. And he named it after his son Enoch. And then from the line of Cain down there in verse 20, Adar, one of his descendants, gave birth to Jabal. He he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. So you see here, the first city is built by Cain, but it's also a place of cultural development. Music, instruments are developed there. It's a place of technological development. They're able to forge things out of metal. It's a place of animal husbandry. They're raising livestock. So in the city, things happen. Why is that? It's because in the, sit- the cities tend to attract human talent and the more people you have in one place who all work in the same profession the more and the more they meet the more ideas they have the more they share best practice this man over here Mike Lehan he's part of a group that meets and shares ideas for nerds <laughs> tech hub you know they t- they go and meet and talk about drupal and things like that because it's a city So it draws and it it advances, economies advance much faster in cities than anywhere else. But it was built by Cain. Cain built it because he wanted a safe place. He thought someone was going to come after him. Turn over to chapter 11 of uh, Genesis and you'll find here the first really famous anti-God city. The city of Babel. And it's sometimes referred to as the Tower of Babel. There is a, they're building a tower, but the city's called Babel. All this people are still together. It's very early in human history. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Here's technology again. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. So they're advancing the building trade. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, this new city is a place of safety and technological advance, but it's also something else. It is a God-defying place. It is an attempt for people to get an identity apart from God and serving him. The sinful drive that we all have for self-centeredness and self-seeking and being our own saviour and lord is here intensified in Babel. They're ganging together to, to storm heaven and to say, we don't need God. We can build our own heaven on earth. Now, cities can do this because cities are like a magnifying glass showing human nature at its best and at its worst. Chapter 19 of Genesis. Uh, it's still going downhill here. Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, again, cities appear in a fairly negative light. Although they have the potential to be places of safety with gates, walls, and population density, they can become places of terrible abuse and injustice. And Lot chooses to go and live near the city because he wants to live in the choice land, and it turns out to be spiritually disastrous for him and his family. He only escapes being destroyed by the grace of God and the intercession of Abraham. Uh, But interestingly, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we tend to think of sexual sin, if you know the story and you know what's often taught about it. This is what Ezekiel, the prophet, says about Sodom. Ezekiel 16, 49. Now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me, therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. Social injustice, according to Ezekiel, was the chief sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's some negative aspects of cities. They have this potential for good, but there's also mixed in there attention that the city can be a place of, of uh, darkness and evil as well. Now when the Israelites come into the promised land, turn over to the book of Numbers, Other nuances get introduced into the Bible's portrait of cities. In Numbers chapter 35, verse 11 and 12, they're told, select some towns to be your cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. Now, you've just got to imagine here in your mind's eye the wild, wild west, Rough justice, you know, frontier towns. There's only one sheriff, and he's in the jail. And people are taking the matters into their own hands. I knew a man once who'd grown up in a tribal uh, village in the northwest part of Pakistan, where Pakistan government basically allows them to get on and sort out their own justice. So most of it was done with bullets. He remembered taking bullets to his uncle's during a street fight when he was eight years old. That's what it was like, rough justice. But here, the city is a place of safety and refuge and rule of law. Out in the countryside, places like Cheshire, things can be really rough. But here in Manchester, people can take refuge and get justice. This is filled out in Deuteronomy chapter 19. God's law makes provision... For three cities to be specially set up, they were called cities of refuge. If anybody accidentally killed someone, manslaughter, they could flee there for refuge and ask for justice. Otherwise, they risked death in a kind of vengeful blood feud. So the cities were places of justice. The elders would sit at the gate and in a public forum would assess the case. Now... There's a positive aspect of city life, but there's a really big change in the Bible's view of the city when we get to the establishment of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21. Jerusalem, the city the Lord has chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. See that? Babel had been established to make a name for Man. Jerusalem is established for God's name. Psalm 48 says this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. This is a love song about a city. The writer loves skyscrapers he wants to live on one he loves the fact that the temple mount the hill where the temple was built on is high up you know tall buildings give a culture a sense of confidence and what is jerusalem for in the psalm it's the joy of the whole earth in other words it doesn't just exist for itself Its riches, its blessings, are not just for the residents, but for everybody in the world to see and come and enjoy. Psalm 107, verse 4-9, to depicts cities as positive places where human life thrives. It says this, Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. That's our God. And he loves cities. So some very positive portrayals of the city are emerging as we've looked at Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the Psalms, and Jerusalem. But there's also a fault line that opens up in the Bible story. We could describe it using the words of Charles Dickens, as a tale of two cities. And it comes out more and more in the prophets. The prophets, the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the twelve are called the minor prophets, not because they're less important, just because they're shorter. <laughs> Those twelve are at the end of our Old Testament. And in this, you have this two, tale of two cities. On the one side is Jerusalem, the city of God, where God's people live and they are in touch with God and under God's rule. And then on the other side, the city of Babylon, which is like the poster child for the wicked, evil, godless city. And you have these two cities coming up again and again through the Bible. Uh, Isaiah, the great prophet, often contrasts the city of man with the city of God. In chapter 26, he writes this praise song and he says... In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates. Let the righteous nation enter, the nation that keeps faith. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord himself is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed the footsteps of the poor. See here in Isaiah's vision, God's city is, is, is basically made up of people who trust God, who lean not on their own understanding, but follow him. And they're righteous. And God keeps them in peace. He gives them a steadfast mind because they trust in God. But if you're uh, proud and haughty in your own accomplishments and your own abilities, God eventually will lay you low. We trample down in the dust. Place of pride in human achievement and self centeredness ultimately will fall. Judgment waits that kind of city. Now, all through the Bible, these two cities run like threads. They represent Babylon and Jerusalem. Which one will triumph? More of that in a moment. Final word about the prophet Jonah. Now, with this prophet, we see a a new phase in history. It's the first time an Israelite Jewish prophet is raised up and sent out of the country, far away to a pagan foreign city. And of all places, it's the city of Nineveh. And, you know, they were the fascists. They were the Nazis of the ancient world. Uh, The Ninevites were cruel, cruel people. And Jonah did not want to go. And preach to them. He does not want God to be merciful to them. For one moment. He was not up for his mission. You know the story. Tried to get on a boat and disappear. But God wasn't having any of it. Sent a great fish. Jonah eventually gets vomited up on the beach. And he says, okay, I'm going to go. And he wants God to punish them. And there's this great thing. And the book of Jonah is not really about the whale. It's about the worm. The worm that comes and eats the plant that Jonah's trying to hide under. Jonah's sitting there, he's preached, he's sitting there probably like this, with a real face on him, jug lip, you know, he's waiting to see, is God going to judge this place that I've just preached in, or is it going to be spared? And as he's there, he's baking hot, he's in in Iraq in the summer, with no suntan lotion, because it hasn't been invented. And he sit and then a plant grows up over him, and he loves the plant. Oh, thank you so much. It's in the shade.. And then the next day, a little worm comes and eats the plant, and the plant dies. And Jonah's so angry he wants to die. Jonah 4: "When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Should I not have concern? It's God speaking about Nineveh. Should I not have concern for the great city? God here makes a case for the importance of the city from the sheer number of human beings who live there, 120,000, which is a big city in the ancient world, and more than 500,000 in Manchester, the city of Manchester, more than 2.5 million in the greater Manchester area, And how many of them cannot tell their right hand from their left, spiritually? He's saying, how can you look at so many lost people and not find compassion in your own heart? If we love God, we will care about the things that God cares about. And God is drawn to the masses of humanity who live in cities. And also, God cares about the fact there's many animals there. This is a reference to the city's economy because its economy was measured in its cattle, its its animals, its developed animal husbandry. God's concern for the whole life of the city. Should I not have concern for it? Then, if we skip forward to the very end of the Bible, we will end our portrayal of God's view of the city here. And here there's a kind of culmination of the city of man and the city of God. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. And we see here perhaps the most vivid and and horrific portrayal of the city of Babylon. Revelation 17. This is vision language. It's visionary. Don't take it literally. Don't try this at home. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things. And the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. End of the chapter, verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. A a very vivid and very horrific portrayal of a rich, God-defying city centered on self, centered on acquiring things for self. The woman's beautifully dressed, but oppressive to Christians, and she is drunk with their blood. In chapter 18, there is judgment that falls on Babylon, and God finally deals with this uh, enmity and threat. And then, as you know, the story doesn't end there. In chapter 21, we read of this new city that Michelle read about earlier. The culmination of all things is, is a city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth. Heaven and earth are joined together. The, the, the rule of God, which is perfectly enjoyed in heaven, now is perfectly enjoyed on earth. And we get to be with God without screens in the way and without curtains in the way and, and living life as fully as it was meant to be because the city of God has now come and in that place interestingly it says that the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it so the great things and the good things from, from world culture get preserved in God's city it's not like the world gets burned up and nothing's saved there's continuity but there's also discontinuity because in this city there's no sorrow or crying or sickness or pain or death because the old order of things has passed away that's the in, in envision beautiful picture language the hope of the Christian is the world to come the world we all want and it's depicted as a city you know the Bible starts with a garden the Garden of Eden but it doesn't end with the garden it ends with a garden city the tree of life is there but it's more than one tree it's all down the sides of the rivers it's much expanded there's many many more people living there living in close proximity in complete harmony. The future is urban. How does God view the city? He, he loves and protects the city of God, which is his faithful people in every generation, a city within a city. But he also judges the city of man. And the glorious future of God's people is an urban one. Now, why is this so important? Why should we care about God's view of the city? Is this just a hobby horse? There are two reasons why Christians here should get their head around God's view of the city. The first is that we live in one. So we need to know how to relate to it. Do we form a religious ghetto? Kind of a holy huddle. All, all turned in, our backs towards everyone else looking at each other, saying how bad people are out there. But we're okay. you know, We know God. Uh, critical of the life of the city and dying to get away to the countryside on holiday. Or, another alternative, apart from the ghetto, is the people who just assimilate. (laughs) They love the city, but they embrace everything in it, including all the bad stuff, uncritically accepting its values. Is there a third way, apart from ghetto or assimilation? The Bible has one, and it's in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, is interesting, because he was writing when God's people had been exiled. They'd lost their own home, they'd lost their city, they'd been carted off to Babylon, and there they were, uh, refugees, brought in forcefully. They'd lost everything. And what happens when they go to live in this wicked pagan environment? How will they relate? Do they form a ghetto? Do they assimilate? Jeremiah says this. He writes a letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those who are carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Here it is on the screen. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Now, if you want to hear a brilliant sermon on this passage, go on the Grace Church website, sermons, and look at the name Pete Horlock because he preached a whole sermon on this wonderful text. I'm only going to make a few comments. Notice here that it says here, God says to them, increase in number. Do not decrease. They should grow in the city. They should be strong. They should grow as a community. He also says, settle down. Uh, Engage in the life of the city plant gardens, build houses, live there. Most strikingly, they are to serve the city. They're to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, of the anti-God city. And they are also to pray for it. Now, all of this calls for a very wise approach to city life, doesn't it? We've seen how Babylon is seen as the essence of culture built on selfishness and corruption and pride and greed. It's the ultimate city of man. Its values are the complete opposite of God's people. And yet, in Babylon, the citizens of the city of God are called to be the very best citizens in the city of man. God commands these Jewish exiles, don't hate the city, don't run away from it, don't attack it, but seek its peace, pray for it, and serve it and continue to grow in numbers. So where are we, Christian friends here, where are we in in God's salvation history? We don't live in the city of the new Jerusalem yet, we know that. But we also don't live in the old Jerusalem, a theocracy, a city that was a religious nation. Our situation is more like this environment of the people Jeremiah was writing to. Therefore, his advice applies to us. This is how we should relate to the city of Manchester, to pray for it, to seek its peace and prosperity, to build houses here and settle down, to to, uh, marry and have children and give our sons and daughters in marriage. (coughs) Thinking about those 50 children again. We're already doing some of this. And to pray for the city. I said there are two reasons why Christians here should get their heads around God's view of the city. The first was that we live in one. And the second reason is maybe even more important. And it's because of our time in history. Our time in history. In 1900, 14% of the world's population lived in cities. 14%. By the year 2011... The world was predominantly urban. More than half of the world's population lived in cities by 2011, six years ago. And the predictions are that by 2050, there'll be more than two-thirds of the world, 69% of the world, will live in cities. So the world is now more urban than it has been at any time in its past. Now, the significant thing about this is that church growth patterns have not kept up with that. Churches are not growing as fast in cities as cities are growing. And Christians often, when they get to a certain stage of life and get a decent job and earn some money, consider moving out of cities to a place where life is more comfortable. What about Manchester? Christians got here early. There's a stone found in a skip in the 1970s that was actually a Roman artifact. This a square called a Sator Square. It's probably from the second century. Christians had found their way to Manchester and were meeting in secret. And this stone was a symbol of their presence. What have Christians done in their time in this city? By the mid-19th century, there were many churches in industrial Manchester One of the largest was called Union Chapel. Its pastor was maybe the finest Bible teacher of the Victorian age, a Scotsman called Alexander McLaren. The church grew so much that it built a 1,500-seater building on Oxford Road that was full every Sunday. It was a growing congregation. Union Chapel developed a vision that would reach the poorer parts of the city. They'd started what were called Mission Halls in Rushome and Hume. The Hume one was started in 1894. It still remains. Its name? Union Hall. But what about Union Chapel? Where Alexander McLaren preached for 45 years. Have you ever heard of it? Gone without a trace. Something happened. In the 20th century, Christianity collapsed in Manchester. At one stage, Burton Road West Didsbury, had four non-conformist churches on it. Four churches. What are they now? A mosque, an office, an adult education centre, and a block of flats. What about the Church of England, the established church? Of the city's more than 250 Anglican churches, more than 50 have under 30 people in attendance. They're dying. But, A new day is dawning. New churches are starting. They're meeting in schools, clubs, community halls, cinemas. They're often full of younger people. There's a bit more of a fire in their belly for worship, for the Bible, for outreach, and for starting new congregations. They love the city, they want to be here. Could this be the start of a new era for Manchester? Last week I showed you this map about the indices of deprivation in Manchester. The red areas are in the, the 10% most deprived uh, areas in, the, in England. What would a spiritual version of this map look like? If we were to put in blue the places that are really well reached by good, strong Bible teaching churches, how many blue places would there be? If we were to put in red, those places where Christians are less than 4% of the population, how many red areas would there be? Can you see the start of what is probably a call on our church to stay here, to get involved, to plant churches, that plant churches, so that Manchester gets filled with communities of light? What about you? What would it mean to be the people of grace here What's your vision for your own life? Not just for the next three years, but for the next 30. You students, what do you think you're going to do when you graduate? Will you stay? Get involved. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Get married. Have children. Plant churches that will plant more churches. Proclaim the gospel faithfully and winsomely. Serve the city. Pray for its peace and prosperity. And plant churches for the glory of God. What does this mean for you? We're very fortunate to live in the day and age that we're in. We're in a time of freedom. uh, But in our world, there are many Christians who don't enjoy such freedom and they, even today, are persecuted. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment after we've sung and uh, we'll be remembering the one who died for us. We'll be remembering the fact that we can live safely in God's city because Jesus was taken outside the city and was killed on the hill of Calvary. The high priest, says the writer of the Hebrews, carries the blood of animals into the most holy places as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Let's pray. Lord, you have established the times and seasons for the nations of this earth and you've established the places where they live and you've done all this so that perhaps they might seek you, reach out and find you because you are not far from any one of us. And you have established in your great sovereignty and your plan that at this stage in world history, the world would be becoming more and more urban. And that in such cities, great influence would be exercised over whole nations, countries, and people groups. And you're calling up a new generation of people to follow you and stay in the city. Thank you that we can be spiritually safe here because Jesus went outside the camp. And took our punishment on himself. Help us to take account of your call on our lives and our generation. And Lord, lead us, we pray, into fruitful ministry in Manchester so that this place could be turned again to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd and be a place filled with communities of light. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. 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 Amen.